0: You're listening to the Energy Policy Podcast a production of the Center for the New Energy Economy at Colorado State University. I'm your host Tom Plant and this month we're going to be discussing renewable energy policies. We're going to start off the discussion with a look at renewable portfolio standards and their structures and then look later in the month at some distributed renewable standards as well as some new and emerging policies to respond to the changing renewable economics and landscape. So To start off, we're gonna talk about renewable portfolio standards, and this is no doubt the most popular renewable policy in the United States. Today, 30 states have RPS laws requiring a certain amount of renewable energy as a part of their energy mix, and eight more states have renewable energy goals. In fact, if you took the combined population of the United States states with RPS requirements, the population would equal the fourth largest country in the world. This is really significant both for the U.S. and globally. So let's take a look at these RPS policies. They aren't all the same. So what are some of the differences, the nuances, and what's the future for renewable portfolio standards? There has been a great deal of attention paid to the potential rollback of RPS policies in recent years. And in fact, there have been a number of bills introduced. In 2013, there were 26 bills introduced to rollback or eliminate RPS policies. And in 2014, there were 14 introduced. But what has sometimes been ignored in these discussions is that there were also 29 bills in 2013 and 13 bills in 2014 to increase RPS standards. In 2013, no legislation to roll back RPSs were successful, but three bills to expand RPS policies passed, and in 2014, it was almost the opposite. Two bills passed to roll back RPS policies and one to expand was successful. So what are some of the differences in these policies? First of all, RPS policies usually take the structure requiring utilities to include a certain amount of their energy from renewable resources. In most states, that takes the form of a percentage, although some states like Texas have a specific generation requirement, uh, which they have exceeded at this point. However, the standard can take a couple of different forms which impact the amount of renewables that will be added to the grid. One such variable of the standard is based on capacity or sales. Uh, Capacity refers simply to the amount of megawatts of generation that's built. Sales refers to how much is produced from that generation and then sold to the customer. So if you take wind as an example, wind might produce energy a third of the time. That is when the wind is blowing and the turbines are operating at their full capacity, only a third of the time. Um, If the total capacity of the system is 100 megawatts and there is a 10% requirement based on capacity, then 10 megawatts of wind would be built. And that 10 megawatts would produce about 29,000 megawatt hours of power over the course of a year. But if the same standard is based on sales, you'd look at the actual total megawatt hours that are produced and sold and take 10% as a portion of that. Say the 100 megawatts of capacity operated 80% of the time, that would be total sales of 700,800 megawatt hours of sales. 10% of that would be 70,000 megawatt hours, which would build more than twice the amount of renewable energy than uh, what we identified through the capacity requirement. Additionally, this type of generation that qualifies as renewable may vary from state to state. For the most part, legislation looks at naturally inexhaustible or replenished resources as renewable. But recently, other technologies, and it might include nuclear fuel cells, methane, and energy storage have also been included in the definitions of renewable within statutes in various states. There's also the consideration of time. For example, do existing sources of renewable generation count towards a standard, or do you set a date where the generation begins to count, or simply refer to new generation after a certain date? This is important for states that use a large amount of existing hydropower from public projects that might date date back decades, such as the Hoover Dam or the Grand Coulee Dam, and also for those states who are looking at an RPS as an economic driver. If you're trying to comply with things that already exist, you're not going to obviously have the economic impact that building new generation would have. Other times, uh, as always, politics is a consideration, right? Because environmental opposition to large hydroelectric projects or large deforestation uh, projects might... um, might lead to a limiting of some renewable projects, and in many states, these projects, these types of sizes and of, of renewable projects, are excluded from renewable standards in various places. So, wind has been the primary beneficiary of renewable portfolio standards. And a study by the Lawrence Berkeley Lab in 2011, actually showed that nearly 92% of compliance with RPS policies was from wind. As a result. A number of states have carve-outs or other requirements or incentives to include other technologies. That might take the form of a technology-specific carve-out. For example, 5% of compliance needs to come from solar. Or a more system-oriented carve-out, such as 10% of compliance must be from distributed renewable resources. Solar dominates the distributed field, just as wind dominates the utility renewable field, although both are, are certainly ways to meet both of those standards. Another way to broaden the range of technologies competing in the renewable standard is to encourage or require diversity through the standard. For example, no more than 50% of the standard may be achieved through any one technology. States might also adopt an alternative compliance payment that allows utilities to pay into a fund as an alternative to incorporating renewable resources. And generally, this payment is set above the cost of renewable energy, and any funds would go towards expanding renewables in the state. Uh, alternative compliance payment may be problematic if in the future the RPS is going to be used to comply with other enforceable national programs like the EPA's forthcoming Clean Power Plan. We'll talk about that in future podcasts. One focus of RPS policies is the economic impact, as I I mentioned, from jobs. And As a result, many states have adopted an in-state requirement. Again, this might be problematic from a constitutional perspective. Uh, many have claimed that an outright requirement that generation is produced in the state is in violation of the Commerce Clause of the U.S. Constitution, and in general, if the state boundary is used to define the parameters of allowable compliance, that might be problematic. But if other terms that are associated more with energy, such as the distribution grid or reduction of line losses, delivery to customers, is is considered within the RPS, that might be generally more acceptable from a constitutional perspective. So the structure of the RPS is critical to the impact of the standard in any state. Finally, there's a historic concern over the cost of renewable expansion and, and what the cost will be to the consumer. As prices have declined dramatically over the last decade, the costs of compliance have come way down to the point that you know, sometimes renewable investments are used to save money cons- for consumers or reduce risk associated with fuel price fluctuations, but there's still a public perception out there that renewable energy is, by definition, more expensive. So as a result, many states have a cost cap that's tied to renewable portfolio standards. For example, the RPS may not increase cost to the consumer by more than X percent. It's important that the cap is interpreted to be an incremental cost and not a total cost. Remember, the focus is not to increase cost to the consumer by more than a certain percent. So comparing to the alternative of traditional generation is important. Uh, Furthermore, it may also be interpreted to be a comparison to the alternative of building new generation of a different type. So the cost comparison uh, also could include estimates of the future costs of fuel for comparison purposes. Since renewables oftentimes have a higher upfront capital cost, but they don't have any fuel costs over the life of the generation, you want to compare what that lifetime cost would be. Finally, the legislation may include a risk factor adjustment. As mentioned, fuel costs fluctuate wildly and as a result, introduce risk into the utility portfolio That risk has a cost by introducing uncertainty into the portfolio, which can increase the costs of borrowing by the utility. So investments in renewables help to stabilize those uh, costs and reduce risks over the long term, and that may have a value that uh, will be considered within the renewable portfolio standards. While RPS's have been incredibly successful in expanding renewable energy across the country, particularly wind and solar, and driving down the cost of those technologies dramatically over the last decade, the market today is very different than when the policies were initiated and many are looking to new and innovative ways to expand renewables after the current standards expire. So in the coming month we're going to look at some of these different policies and the promise they hold for the future of renewable generation in the United States. You've been listening to the Energy Policy Podcast. This is a production of the Center for the New Energy Economy at Colorado State University. I am your host, Tom Plant. You can find these podcasts and and others that we've recorded at policypodcast.com. Thanks a lot for listening.